0: For this part of the show I usually try to pull up some of the most recent facts having to do with nature, or the environment or gardening. But this one's a little interestingly different. It's it's brand new information at least all in one spot. It's a new thing they found they're calling mosquito resistant clothing prevents bites in all the trials, but it's insecticide free. It's not an you're not wearing I don't wear insecticide-soaked clothing, although they are certainly available. North Carolina State University researchers have created insecticide-free, mosquito-resistant clothing using textile materials they confirmed to be bite-proof in experiments with live mosquitoes and some other insects. They developed the materials using a computational model of their own design, which describes the biting behavior particularly of the Aedes aegypti, the mosquito that carries viruses that cause human diseases, such as Zika, dengue fever, and even yellow fever. Ultimately, the researchers reported in the journal Insects that they were able to prevent 100% of bites when a volunteer wore their clothing. A base layer undergarment and a combat shirt initially designed for the military They were in a cage with a couple hundred live, disease-free, fortunately, mosquitoes. Vector Textiles, and a North Carolina state startup company, has licensed the related patent rights and intends to make clothing for commercial sales here in the United States initially. The researchers think their computational model could be used more widely to develop clothing to reduce transmission of diseases. The fabric has proven to work well. That's the great thing we discovered, said study co-author Andre West, associate professor of fashion and textile design in North Carolina State and director of Zeiss Textiles Extension for Economic Development. To me, that's revolutionary. We found that we can prevent the mosquito from pushing through the fabric while others were thick enough to prevent it from reaching the skin. I found this a little interesting. To develop the commutational model to design textile materials that could prevent mosquito bites. Researchers investigated the dimensions of the head, antenna, and mouth of the Aedes aegypti and the mechanics of just how it bites. Then they used the model to predict textile materials that would prevent bites depending on their thickness and their pore size. Researchers said they believed the materials could be effective against mosquito species in addition to the Aedes aegypti, because of similarities in biology and biting behavior. To test the accuracy of their model, the researchers tested the materials predicted to be bite-proof. In experiments with live, disease-free mosquitoes, the researchers surrounded a blood reservoir with plastic materials made according to parameters predicted by the model. They then counted how many mosquitoes became engorged with blood. One material they initially tested was very thin, less than a millimeter thick, but had also very small pore sizes to prevent the mosquito from being able to stick its mouth parts, or proboscis, through the material. Another material had a medium pore size to prevent the mosquito from inserting its head through the textile far enough to reach the skin. And a third material had large pores but was sufficiently thick that the mosquito's mouth still couldn't get to the skin of the test subject. In a subsequent test, the researchers chose a series of knitted and woven fabrics that met the bite-proof parameters determined by the model, and validated they worked in experiments using both the blood reservoir and human volunteers. The researchers tested the number of bites received by the volunteers when study participants inserted an arm covered by a protective sleeve into a mosquito cage. The researchers also compared the fabric's ability to prevent bites and repel mosquitoes to fabrics treated with an insecticide. From what they learned, in early experiments, researchers developed a bite-resistant, form-fitting undergarment made with the thin material, as well as a long-sleeved shirt, which was initially envisioned as a combat shirt for the military. When a volunteer wore the garment sitting for 10 minutes and standing for 10 minutes in a walk-in cage with hungry mosquitoes, the volunteer found the combat shirt was 100% effective at preventing bites. The designers also tested the clothing for comfort to see how well it trapped heat and and released moisture. The final garments then were actually produced with 100% bite-resistant materials, said Michael Rowe. Everyday clothing you wear in the summer is not bite-resistant to mosquitoes and other insects. Our work has shown that it doesn't have to be that way. Clothes that you wear every day can be made bite-resistant. Ultimately, the idea is to have a model that will cover all possible garments that person would ever want, both for the military as well as for private use. Let me throw sort of my caveat into the end of this. I found it interesting that you don't have to have any insecticide to prevent from getting bitten. But what what a revolutionary thought for places where malaria is prominent. Special-made clothes for the kids or the people there would be far, far safer than spraying their house with DDT, which they still do, and other pesticides. So this could go a lot further than just making us a little more comfortable here in the States, which is where they're going to release the shirts to be, I guess, tested or really bought first. But what, what a concept in, in third world. Well, incidentally, as climate change jumps on us, we may also be in a malaria situation before we know it. So uh, I think this is uh, uh, going a long way in the right direction. Sometimes on my shows, I like to do, for a long time, I would do a bird a week because I happen to be a bird nerd. But my real upbringing uh, as a young man was my interest in reptiles. Several years ago, I had the good fortune, I guess you'd call it, to go to a ranch in South Texas. I guess I won't say, well, I will say what it ended up being. It was uh, two fellows named the Jambers Brothers. They happened to be twins. I happened to be a twin. And they owned a, a nice piece of property down in South almost real South Texas. But the government came in and forced them to sell about 1,100 acres of their best bottom land because they flooded it and made it into a big lake. It's now called Choke Canyon. The reason I'm bringing all this up is the one thing they had maintained on their ranch intentionally over many, many years was a fair population of alligators they had oh half dozen maybe what we call stock ponds if you're from the south and in those ponds each had um, a decent population of american alligators nobody really mentioned it much very often but they were there now there's a really good population of american alligators at Choke Canyon Reservoir. If you've never been out in the wild to see an alligator and you want to go somewhere that's going to be pretty sure or want to pop up if you're there very long, then uh, take, take a trip down to Choke Canyon. So I want to talk a little bit about the American alligator. The American alligator is kind of a large, slightly rounded body with thick limbs, a broad head, and a really powerful tail. Males can weigh 500 pounds to over 1,000 pounds. One American alligator allegedly and I knew of this alligator 30 years ago, reached length of 19 feet and 2 inches and would have been or probably is the largest record that, that is authentic. Most of the time they grow 9 to 14 feet, 9 to 14 and a half feet, and that's pretty common size for an adult male. The tail, which accounts for about half the alligator's total length, is primarily used for getting them pushed around. It's their uh, it's propulsion system. The tail can also be used as a weapon of defense when an alligator gets threatened. They will flip it at you. I've handled some in my life. Alligators travel very quickly in the water, are generally slow moving on land, and can lunge, um, pretty good, they'll surprise you if you've got a nine footer there or something, you need to give yourself a little space. Alligators eat almost anything they catch, but primarily consume fish, birds, turtles, mammals, and amphibians. Hatchlings, however, the little ones, which we used to get in the ditches in Georgia when I was a kid, keep them for a while, illegally we found out, and then turn them loose. But they live mostly on small invertebrates, and they'll occasionally catch a lizard or a salamander. Uh, Larvae, snails, I've seen them eat spiders, they love worms, and they... uh, that's mostly what they live on for the first year or two. Of course, as they grow, they start to eat small fish when they can, and gradually move into larger fish, frogs, small mammals like rats and mice. The subadults, the six to eight, 10-foot guys, are more on to turtles, birds, moderate-sized mammals, and raccoons maybe, and pets occasionally. <laughs> I only know of one time that happened because someone had a pet tied at a cabin near the lake and the dog couldn't get loose and so they did have a problem with that particular alligator but it was let's say it this way I don't think it was the alligator's fault that that was not a good place to tie your dog once an alligator reaches adulthood any living animal in or near the water is a potential prey and they've been known to eat wild boar what we call razorbacks deer they have taken a few cattle and sheep You have to think about that if you have uh, alligators near where you are. um, Interestingly enough, they're known to regularly kill any smaller alligator they can get their mouth around. Larger males have been known and seen and photographed to take both panthers, what we call puma in South Florida, and bears, sort of making American an alligator when it gets big enough, the apex predator throughout wherever its distribution happens to be. And here's a little factoid you might be interested in. The alligator's greatest value to the marsh and, uh, and the other animals that inhabit those are the what we call gator holes. The many adults create and expand over a period of years. An alligator uses its mouth and claws and uproots vegetation to clear out a space. Then shoving with its body and slashing with that tail that's it's pretty big and strong, it wallows out a depression that stays full of water in the wet season and holds water after the rain stops. During the dry season, and particularly during extended droughts, folks, what are we having everywhere now? Extended droughts. This is why they're more important than we thought. Gator holes provide vital water for fish, insects, crustaceans, snakes, turtles, birds, and all the other mammals. In addition, of course, he gets to live there himself. But they actually save, even though you think, oh, they're the apex predator, they're going to wipe out all the animals. No, the very life existence they've lived for millions of years have Provide habitat for everything else that lives in that area that probably wouldn't make it at all if it wasn't for these huge alligators digging these gator holes. And they're very interesting when you find them out in the wild and allowing all the other members and allowing all the other wildlife in the area to have a place to stay till and if the next big rains come. As I occasionally do when I end up babbling on about things, uh, probably more than you want to know about the American alligator. But thanks for staying and listening to Organic Matters.